I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bible again to the book of Jonah, and we want to continue our journey with Jonah through the four chapters that make up this little book that has such a powerful message. We are in the portion of Jonah, and those of you who may be joining us today, uh, we are in the portion of Jonah where all of a sudden Jonah fades from the foreground. Up to this point, almost everything that has been happening in the book has put our attention on what God is doing in Jonah and what is God is doing around Jonah and what God is doing through Jonah. And so by the time we get to chapter 3, we have followed the steps of Jonah and we have listened in to some of the conversation that he has been having in his heart with the Lord. And as we've been listening into that conversation, we have found ourselves often, at least I have, and I'm sure many of you have as well, we have found ourselves seated next to Jonah with those same thoughts and those same conversations going on in our own lives. And this morning as we come to Jonah chapter 3, you'll remember we looked at the first five verses the Sunday before Easter And we noted that God did something amazing in Jonah so that he could do something amazing through Jonah. And that's very often the way that God works in his world. Before God will do something through you, sometimes he has to do something in you. And you never know exactly what it is that God may choose to do. Some of you may have an idea of how you think God is working. Some of you may have a direction in which you have, as, as you've prayed and thought about your life, pointed your direction, but you don't know exactly what God is doing through you until you settle what God is doing in you. And that's exactly what we noted when Jonah came to this most unexpected place. I think if you had met Jonah as a young prophet... And you ask Jonah, Jonah, how do you think your ministry is going to go? What do you think God is going to do? What are your aspirations as a prophet? He would say something along the lines, well, it's a great honor to serve the Lord. And I know that I'm not up to the task. I'm, I'm trusting that God will enable me and that he will give me the words to say. And I'm praying that God's words would have effect in the hearts of the people that God has sent me to. You know, I am a prophet of the Lord, and I have been sent to the nation of Israel. And so that's kind of how I think it's going to go. I think it'll be hard at times. I think that that sometimes the Lord's going to ask me to say hard things to his people. I may even have to do some of the things that earlier prophets did. I may have to jump up and uh, make my way to the capital city, and I may have to appear uh, before Jeroboam II, and I may have words for him. And I sure hope that when those moments come, that the Lord will find me faithful, and that the Lord will strengthen me, and the Lord will enable me, and the Lord will bless me. Is that all you think God might do? Well, that's a lot. (laughs) You know, obviously you're not very familiar with those prophets, and the ministry we have, what I just said to you is an amazing amount of things uh, for one prophet to do in his lifetime. And so yes, I, I think if I were to have aspirations... Uh, I would want to be a faithful servant of God. I would want to be uh, a, a faithful servant of His Word. And I would want to be a faithful servant to His people. That's what I want. And God said to Jonah, well, very good. Um, thank you for that. 
I'm so pleased with those desires. I'm pleased that you want to be a faithful servant. I'm pleased that you love the Word and you want to be faithful to that Word. And, and I'm so thankful that you love my people, you know, just between me and you, Jonah. They're a hard lot to love sometimes. Jonah just, I could just imagine Jonah nodding his head and, and not knowing what to say about that. What do, what do you say when God says that? And then Jonah, Jonah's standing there, and one day God says to him, Jonah, actually, uh, I, I'm going to do a, a little something out of the norm. I, I'm going I'm to send you to uh, uh, take a message to a group of people that I've been working in. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to send you to Nineveh. And that was completely off Jonah's radar. Completely out of Jonah's comfort zone and theologically, Jonah had an immense issue with what God was doing. So before Jonah gets to chapter 3, where we see him actually delivering the message of God to the Ninevites, God had to do an immense work in Jonah. Jonah had to experience the very mercy that God was taking to the Ninevites. And you know, honestly, folks, that's exactly how it works in our lives. The work that God wants to do through you is a work that oftentimes you are not anticipating and you are not suited for, and God has to do a work in you. And so that's what the first half of the book is all about. It is about God pursuing a reluctant prodigal prophet and doing the work that needs to be done in him so that he can do the work that God has appointed him to do. And then we come to chapter 3. And what we discover in chapter 3 is the greatest single revival in the entire Bible. This is the most stunning display of God working through his word to bring an entire people to himself. More than 120,000 individuals are impacted by the work that God does in this city. There is no other place in your Bible, there is no other uh, account where you have these kinds of, imp- or this kind of impact on these many people. And it is stunning because when Jonah gets there, he doesn't want to preach. And so instead of going throughout the city for three days like God told him, he hung out on the outskirts of the city and he opened his mouth and he preached a very brief and a very hard message for one day and by the end the entire city had come to repentance. So this is a very significant passage. I said to you, those of you that have been following along, that I believe that Jonah is the one who wrote the book. And I believe that Jonah wrote the book years after the events that took place in his life that he's writing about. So while we're reading these four chapters, and we're right in the middle of the action, when Jonah wrote the book, he's actually writing the book long after these events took place, And as he writes the book, he is weaving things into the narrative and he's pulling things up so that a bigger message can come through that he had to learn the hard way as he was experiencing the things that we're reading about in these 
four chapters. And one of the things I think that Jonah is doing in chapter 3 is he is calling attention to three cities. There is a tale of three cities that is being told in Jonah chapter 3. Now most of you remember back to your high school years uh, or maybe to your college years and you read a very famous author who wrote a very famous work of literature that began like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light and a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope and it was the winter of despair. You know the book. How many of you have read A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens? Can I see your hands? Okay, all right. How many of you have heard of the book? All right, that's better. Almost everybody's heard of the book and not, not all of us have read the book. Well, let me give you a little history to this book, because I think what Dickens does in his Tale of Two Cities is very interesting. Dickens wrote this book in 1859. The events that he put into that book took place years earlier in the late 1700s, right after the French Revolution and the reign of terror had come to an end. And in the aftermath of that, there are two families... That, that have to sort of rebuild their lives out of the ashes of that revolution. And so the action takes place in two cities. One city is the city of Paris that is building itself back up from all that happened in that uh, horrific period of time in its history. And the other uh, place where the action happens is in the city of London. And, and Dickens is writing many years after this, uh, and, and he puts the setting of the story way back then, but he's writing in 1859, and there are things he's trying to communicate about France, and there are things that he's trying to communicate about England. And one of the things that he's trying to do in the book is he is trying to help you understand that the instability of France needs to be contrasted by the stability of England that has been going on now for these decades after the French Revolution. Now, there is a third nation that is watching all of this. This is kind of where Dickens is going. Here are things that are happening in the book and and there's a lot of turmoil and there's a lot of hurt and there's a great injustice that has been done and it all ties back to this period of instability and over here in London, there, there is stability. Even though there's been conflict, even though there has been difficulty, there is stability. But there is a third nation and Dickens is aware that this nation is watching. And the third nation that is watching is a new nation, a nation that broke away from the United States, from uh, from England, and you know it now as the United States of America. And this nation, in the period of time that he is writing about, experienced a great deal of instability itself. And so as you read Dickens, particularly this story, it is the story about two cities that are speaking to a third Now, I'm not pulling Dickens in because I think that there's things in Dickens that are in Jonah. I'm pulling Dickens into our sermon this morning because I think Jonah is doing something very similar. He is writing this 
And he's going to reference two cities in chapter 3, but there's a third city that's watching. And so I want to show you how this works. There are two cities in the Old Testament that describe how God feels about wickedness. So what are the three cities that Jonah has in mind as he writes uh, this little book? Well, the first is a city that becomes sort of the example of God's judgment. And I'm going to show you a slide here uh, in just a minute. As If they can advance the slide one, please. I'm going to show you a, a slide that is a slide you should be familiar with. That is uh, Lot and his two daughters, and they are fleeing from what city? They are fleeing from the city of Sodom. You say, Pastor Sam, I thought this was a city about a story about the city of Nineveh. So where in the world are you pulling up the idea of Sodom? Well, I want you to notice the warning that Jonah utters. He said, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The word overthrown there is is a word, and we talked just briefly about this word the last time that we looked at this. That word is a word that is a very violent word. This speaks to what God is going to do when wickedness comes up before Him, and that wickedness is so great that He can no longer ignore it, and, and the people who are doing that wickedness refuse to repent. And what happens to a city like that is that God overturns it. You can see this in Genesis uh, chapter 18, verse 21, when God has an interaction with Abraham. He said, I will go down and see whether they, that's the Sodom and Gomorrah, the people who live there, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me. Now there's a big hint there, because in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, a great wickedness has come up from a city before the Lord. Jonah is wanting you to make this connection. Here is a city whose great wickedness has come up to the Lord. Ding, ding, ding. There's another big city in the Old Testament whose wickedness, whose outcry had come up before the Lord. So what happened to that city? Well, in Genesis 19, you know the story. Abraham has interceded many times for this city. The two angels that are sent by the Lord to destroy the city come into the city, and the city continues in its great wickedness. And they do something absolutely atrocious, immoral, and wicked, And at which point the two men speak to Lot, and they say, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, or anyone that you have in the city? Bring them out for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Wow. Jonah said, I want you to think about that. There is a city and God sent me to that city and I didn't want to go there, but that city had great wickedness that had come up before the Lord, and there is another city in the Old Testament who had great wickedness that came up before the Lord, and it is the example of what God does to cities where there is great wickedness that comes up against them. He destroys them. In fact, all through your Bible, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah become the examples of what God does 
when great wickedness is unaddressed. Listen to how Peter put it in his letter in the New Testament. He said, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So city number one that Jonah wants you to think about is found in that little warning that he gave to Nineveh about 40 days and God is going to overthrow you just like he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's city number one. City number two is the city that we're reading about, the city that Jonah has come to, this great metropolis, this this immense place, one of the seats of power in one of the most powerful nations in the ancient world, the nation of Assyria. And you know the story. We've been talking about this city. Their own great wickedness had come up before the Lord. And God said, I am going to deal with their great wickedness. And and Jonah, I'm sending you there to warn them. And of course, Jonah reluctantly goes and he issues that great warning. And by the end of chapter 3, the entire city has repented. So if Sodom and Gomorrah are the example of what God does when great wickedness is not repented of, Nineveh is the wonderful example of what God does when when wickedness is repented of. And so you have these two examples that are set before. So what is the third city? It is the most wonderful city in your Old Testament. It is a glorious city. It is the place where God has chosen to dwell among His people. You have a picture there of the temple. The great, beautiful temple of Solomon. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And here God's people dwelt. And here the presence of God was right in their midst. Here the Torah of God had been given. And the priests of God mediated the worship of God. It was the center of your Old Testament life. And the great wickedness of that city had come up against the Lord, and the Lord was about to destroy them. And there is a message that God has to that great city, a very similar message that He sent by another prophet named Jeremiah. Listen to what Jeremiah said as he invited that great city that Jonah is so burdened over. To repent, he said this. Jeremiah said, The Lord said to you this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up, break it down, and destroy it, if that nation about which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build it and plant it, And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will also relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Here's Jeremiah, almost a hundred years after Jonah, and he's saying to the Israelites, let me tell you what God said. God said that if he told a city he would tear it down and pluck it up, unless they repented, and they repented, God would relent. And there's a city in your Bible to show you that's true. It is the most unusual city in our Old Testament is the city of Nineveh. And Jonah was its prophet. 
But on the other hand, Jeremiah went on to say, if God has said to a city, I'm going to build you, I'm going to establish you, and I'm going to make you fruitful, which is exactly what God has said to you, O Jerusalem. And if that city continues in its wickedness and refuses to repent, then God is going to repent. God is going to relent of the good things that He said He was going to do for it. This is a very, very serious and sober warning that God is giving to a nation. And so this morning, as we come to the last half of this chapter, what does repentance that pleases God really look like? How do we explain a revival like this? How do we re- explain what went on in the hearts of a nation and in a city that was so bent on wickedness that their cry had come up before God and, and God could no longer ignore it? And then all of a sudden, The next thing we know, the entire city is on its knees. The entire city, including the king. And by the way, the king here is called the king of Nineveh. He's actually the the king of the entire Assyrian nation. Sometimes in the Old Testament, kings were the kings of Israel, who were king over the entire thing, were also called like the king of Samaria. And whatever city they were in, he was the king over it. And so here is the king of Assyria And here is the third largest city in his empire, and he is there as the king over that city, and he repents. This is stunning. And so as we go to the text, there are some questions that we need to ask. How did this come about? Because we know it wasn't Jonah. How did this come about? What was the means by which God so graciously worked? Look at verse 4 of this text. The means by which God so graciously worked all of this. In in verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out. In verse 2, God said, when you get to Nineveh, I want you to call out. And what I want you to call out to that city is a message that I'm going to give you. In verse 6, the word, the message that God gave to Jonah to call out reached the ear of the king. So how did all of this come about? It came about by means of God's authoritative word. God gave a very authoritative and a very clear and a very specific and a very gracious word. He said to Jonah, I want you to tell Nineveh my word. And here is my word to Nineveh. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. You say, well, where is the grace in all of that? Well, there certainly is a warning and we've already seen the warning in that brief word that came from God. Jonah, tell Nineveh, then I'm going to overthrow them. And and we already noted the connection between the word overthrow and uh, uh, and what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the entire ancient world would have been familiar with that. But there's a word of grace in this message too, and it's this. Yet 40 days. 40 days. Jonah says, now, I, I, I want you to notice that because... As I got away from this and I look back on it, I began to see the graciousness of that phrase. 
because 40 days was the exact period of time that the very first prophet Israel ever had, the prophet Moses, was on his knees interceding for this great nation who had involved themselves in the very kind of idolatry and the very kind of immorality that God was about to judge Nineveh for. And Moses interceded for 40 days and God relented and God spared his people. And so here you have an authoritative word and the word is the means by which God does his work. And by the way, folks, that hasn't changed today. It is the word of God that does this deep work in our lives. It is the Word of God that we read. It is the Word of God that the Spirit of God uses to convict us. It is the Word of God that that the Spirit uses to encourage us. It is the Word of God that we must come to understand and we must come to embrace. And the only way we're ever going to understand or embrace the Word that, that is being preached to us or the Word that we are reading is for God to do a work in us. And that's exactly what he does here in Nineveh. He does a work through his word by his spirit. There is absolutely no other explanation for what happened. Jonah shows up, doesn't even go the distance God told him to go. He opens up his mouth. He stands in front of people. He says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And what happens next is stunning. It's stunning. And there's only one explanation. I mean, how do you explain an entire city repenting from the greatest to the least? And how is it that this message gets to the very ear of the king? And how is it that the king arises from his throne? He never did that. And more importantly, that he took off all of the trappings of his position, his wealth, his power. And he humbles himself. The Assyrians were known for many, many things. Humility was not one of them. Repenting was not one of them. How do you explain a citywide fast of such extreme measures that even the animals are included in it. How did this happen? If you lived in Jonah's day and you were a faithful follower of Yahweh and somebody said, who are the hardest people on the planet, the people that you think God will never reach, you would have immediately said, well, right at the top would have to be these Assyrians. And in goes Jonah. And five words later, the entire city is on its knees. And folks, there's the, the only explanation for this is that God took His Word and His Spirit used that Word to move in the hearts of people. I want to ask you a very pointed question this morning. What happens? Or maybe I should say it this way. Why is it that you and I can sit and hear the Word of God week after week after week after week after week. We can go home and we can open up our Bible and we can read it and read it and read it and we can underline it and we can star it. And we can sit in our car and we turn on the radio and we can hear it sung to us day after day after day after day after day and nothing happens 
in our heart. Oh, I don't mean that we're not emotionally stirred. I don't mean that, oh, that was a blessing. Oh, that was wonderful. Oh, I get to check off my daily reading. I don't mean that. I mean, how is it that we can have such a lengthy and personal interaction with the Word of God week after week, day after day, month after month, and no real work of the Spirit is done in our heart? How does that happen? And more importantly, let me ask you a question that I've had to ask myself this week. Are we at all bothered by that? Whatever gracious work God ever chooses to do in my heart, whatever gracious work God ever chooses to do in your heart begins with God. It is His Spirit and His Word that works in us. It is His Spirit that opens our eyes. It is His Spirit that, it, that enlivens our heart. It is His Spirit that energizes our will so that we can submit it to what God has said. How did this great work happen? It happened by means of the Word and by means of God's Spirit. Now, what exactly happened. So now that I know how all this happened, what exactly happened? What was the manner by which this gracious Word was actually obtained? How did it, how did it come about? And then what exactly happened? And, and here's what happened. You can see it in verse 5, in the very first phrase. The people of Nineveh believed God. That's what happened. You want to know how all of this came about? The Word of God and the Spirit of God. But you want to know what went on to bring all of this about? People believed. They believed God's Word and they trusted in the God that Jonah was presenting to them. And that brings up a big question that uh, many, many commentators have, and it's this. What did Jonah mean... And what did the Spirit of God imply when the people of Nineveh believed God? And there, there are two big ideas here. One idea is, well, they, they, were, they, they saw this prophet, and Luke says he was a sign unto them. So obviously a ton of things had been going on around them. There, for example, had been a great solar eclipse. They were in the middle of a big famine. Their enemies were rising in power. They were losing their status Uh, on the global stage. And so there were a lot of things going on to destabilize Assyria during this time. And right in the middle of all of that comes this prophet named Jonah from a god they all had heard about. Every one of them had heard about Jonah's god. They knew what he did to Egypt. They had all heard that story. They had heard what happened when his servant Joshua led the armies of this nation of Jonah's God into the land of Canaan, and they came up against the incredibly armed city of Jericho. They heard about all that. They remembered the greatness of David. They had heard about the wisdom of Solomon, and now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in their midst comes a prophet, an appointed prophet of this great God. And this great God is saying to them, I'm going to destroy you in 40 days. And so at the very least, the people believed Jonah and began thinking and talking about what to do. The other option is more than just believing in the message. They actually put their trust in 
Jonah's God. Now that would be a stunning thing for a pagan idolater like the king who led many pagan idolaters to all of a sudden turn from their idols to believe in the living God and to worship Him was stunning. Could this happen? And so we have these two options, and I'm going to give you my opinion. And you're not obligated to my opinion. I am obligated to tell you when it's my opinion. But here's my opinion. I actually think this is what happened. I actually think the king and the entire city put saving faith in Jonah's God. And one of the reasons that I think that is because this same language is used in Genesis 15 to describe what Abraham did when he turned away from idols and believed in God. And the text says it was counted to him for righteousness. And the second reason I think that this is probably what happened is because Jesus himself uses the repentance of the Ninevites to chastise the Pharisees who refused to believe in him, and he said that on the last day, these Ninevites will rise up and condemn you. And the implication of that is that they are rising up on Jesus' side. And so that's why I believe that what happened here is they believed, they didn't just believe with their head, they actually wholly trusted in Jonah's heart, and that trust, that belief, produced a certain kind of work. Repentance. And you can see it. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Listen, when God begins to work in the heart of a person, it doesn't matter how great the wickedness, it doesn't matter how hard the soul, it doesn't matter how blind the heart, when God begins to work, God works. And when the Spirit of God is drawing a man, that man comes. And here the Spirit of God was drawing a king and 120,000 individuals and, and they responded when the Spirit of God summoned them. Do you know why you repented? Well, of course I know why I repented. I didn't want to go to hell. Okay, I understand that. But do you know why you repented? Well, yeah, I repented because, you know, sin is bad and God is holy and, and I don't want to do bad things anymore and, and, and I want to please God. Okay, I, I get that. But you're not answering my question. Do you know why you repented? The reason you repented, folks, was because God granted you repentance. That's how you repented. God granted you repentance. And that's exactly what he is doing here in the city of Nineveh on an amazing scale. Now, how is all of this playing out in the daily life of the Ninevites? What is the manifestation that shows up when the work that God is doing is actually this kind of work? So what happens when the Spirit of God begins to do this kind of gospel work in the heart of a king and in the heart of pagan idolaters who are filled with immorality, injustice, and violence. How do we know what are the outward markings that God is at work like this? Well, here's the manifestation. You can see it in verses 6-8. through eight. First of all, there is humble 
penitence. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And I want you to notice that before the king ever told anybody else to do this, he was doing it himself. And before the king was doing it, the people were already doing it. There is this instinctive knowledge, this conviction by the Spirit of God that your sins have risen up and offended a holy God. And and in order for God to deal with you, you have to deal with Him. And the first step of that is humble penitence. Isn't this what God told Israel? Remember that third city Jonah's writing to? Now, now Jonah would be saying to them, and Jeremiah would be shouting to them, pay attention here. This is what happens when God is working in the heart of a person who is guilty of great wickedness. There is humble penitence. And then there is desperate seeking. He issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. In other words, the king is saying, we need to display our humility and our penitence and our contrition and then we need to come with God and we need to cry out to God with all of our heart and with all of our strength. That's the idea of mightily. This is not half-hearted efforts. This is not you know, somebody coming along and saying, oh, okay, Jonah, you're right, I shouldn't be doing these things, and uh, I guess it does offend your God, and, and so yeah, I'll repent. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry I did that. Now can we go on and do our thing? That's not what's happening here. The Spirit of God has done such a deep work of conviction in the heart of these people that they and their king have put aside every part of life And they have given attention to seeking the face of God and to coming before Him, drawing near to Him, as James said, with mourning over their sin. This fast is not just the idea that we're not going to eat food or water. It's something much more. When you call for a national fast and you put trappings of mourning on everything, including including the animals, everybody is to stop what is going on in their daily life and to mourn over their sins. And that's exactly what is happening here. There's desperate seeking. And then there's genuine repentance. Notice what the king says in verse 8, let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now we're starting to see them acknowledge their guilt in this great wickedness that has come up before the Lord in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. It has manifested itself in idolatrous worship, in immoral living, and in grave injustice and in violence that everyone had been doing with his own hands. This national call for repentance is not just a corporate prayer that the king is praying. It is an individual prayer that every citizen prayed. And by the way, any great corporate calling out to God for help and for forgiveness has to start at the individual level. It's not enough that a church like ours would come before the Lord and say, Lord, we have sinned against You and against Your Word. Would You forgive us like 
like Ezra said or Nehemiah prayed, would you forgive us? It has to start at the individual level. Lord, I have sinned. I have done these things. And then it has to be followed by genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is a turning away, a tearing down of what has offended God. Humble penitence and desperate seeking and genuine repentance are the marks that inevitably show up when God is at work in the heart of a person that He is convicting over their sins. So let me stop here for a minute and ask you this. Have you experienced that in your life? Have you ever been in a place where the Spirit of God has unusually worked in you and you have come to a deep sense, and maybe for the first time, to understanding how offensive your sin is to God? You know, we typically address it on a horizontal level. I did so-and-so, such-and-such is so-and-so, or I said such-and-such about so-and-so, and so I feel really bad about that. But, but the greatest person offended by your sin is not me or anybody else or you. It's God. And that's why James, when he instructs us about repentance, says the first thing you better do is you've got to humble yourself, and then you have to draw near to God. And drawing near to God means that I'm coming to God through His Word, by His Spirit, and I'm agreeing with God about what He sees in my life. I'm not trying to hide it anymore. I'm not trying to cover it. I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm not trying to justify it. I'm looking at it through God's eyes, and I'm saying to God, God, you're exactly right. This is exactly what David did in Psalm 32. He starts off by saying, I covered my sin and I was miserable. But he goes on to say, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my heart. Now, what was the motive behind all of this? Why did the king do this? The king tells you this in two words. Who knows? Who knows? Look, we need to do this regardless, no matter what happens to us. Even if the judgment that Jonah is preaching comes, we need to do this. Who knows, however? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. Jonah makes a really big point here that as the king makes this proclamation, he is not trying to manipulate a response from God. Mercy is not obligatory on God's part. Mercy is God's sovereign grace. When you and I sin greatly and the Spirit of God convicts us deeply and we confess truly and we repent authentically, God forgives. Forgiveness is the outcome of repentance. But sometimes, often, there is more. Sometimes there is mercy. And God relents and turns away from what was about to come upon you. And the king acknowledges all of this. And then notice uh, the message that Jonah has for us, the reader, and for others. It's in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster 
that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Remember I said Jonah's writing to three cities, or about three cities. He wrote about Sodom and Gomorrah and said, look, if you want to know the example of what God does when great wickedness rises up against him, if you want to know how God feels about it, and you want to know what God does about that great wickedness, then you need to remember what he did to Sodom, and you need to remember what he did to Gomorrah, because that is what God does to, uh, to wicked people who are guilty of wickedness. And then he's writing to Nineveh and he says, but not everybody gets that. Here's what God does when people repent and respond, when the grace of God is at work in their heart and the Spirit of God is enlightening them and enlivening them and enabling them to repent. When they repent, often God relents and shows great mercy. God hears the humble prayer of His people. God saw what they did. The word see there isn't just what God did with His ears. It's the whole thing. God God heard their praying and He saw their penitent repentance. He saw all of it. And He weighed it and He evaluated it and He penetrated it and it was genuine. God heard and God saw and then God graciously responded. How did he respond? He relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Now as we close our message this morning, I want you to fast forward a hundred years to the time of Jeremiah. This revival is long past. The northern kingdom was taken into captivity But the chief city, the city where God put His heart and His presence, the city of Jerusalem, was in the midst of a lengthy experience of great wickedness that was coming up to God. And God was finally at the point where He was going to bring judgment on that city. And He said to Jeremiah, I want you to go to Jehoiakim the king and to all the people, and I want you to go to the temple, and I want you to talk to the priests. And I want you to talk to the prophets. And here's what I want you to tell them. Jeremiah 26, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship and speak to them all the words that I command you. Do not hold back a word. Why? Verse 3. It may be they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way. You know, when God speaks to you and when God speaks to me, it may be that we will turn and we will heed. It may be that they will listen and everyone turn from his evil way and I may relent of the disaster I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. This is Jeremiah 26. Verse 4, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I set before you and to listen to the words of my servants the prophets whom I send you urgently, though you have not listened thus far, then I will make this house like Shiloh. I'll destroy it. And I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Wow. This is Jeremiah. And he's not going to Nineveh. He's not going to a bunch of pagans and a bunch of idolaters. He's coming to the very temple of God as the official prophet of God. And he's speaking to the priests and to the ruling leaders. How did they respond? Look at verse 7. The priests 
and the prophets. And all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking everything that God commanded him to speak, then the priests and the prophets and the people laid hold of him saying, you must die. You must die. As stunning as what happened at Nineveh was when Jonah showed up and gave them this brief word from God, as stunning as the repentance was, even more stunning is the hard heart of God's own people who had had prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, who had experienced mercy after mercy after mercy. And here on the eve of their destruction, as the Babylonian armies are approaching, God sends one more word of warning, one more extent. Uh, extension of mercy, and he sends Jeremiah, and when Jeremiah is done preaching a six-verse message, the priests and the prophets and the people grab him, and they say to him, you are worthy of death. That's stunning. And here's the point I think Jonah would say to you, the hardest hearts are often not in the pagan cities. The hardest hearts are sometimes in the pews. And so let me ask you a question. As we finish, how is your heart? There have been times, I'm sure in this series or in your own reading, that God has been touching your heart about some area where your life is not conformed to Him. And He is saying to you, this displeases me. Would your repentance be more like the Ninevites or would it be more like what Jeremiah experienced? The Word of God speaks to you and, and it comes to you through the preaching of God's Word or through uh, your own reading or through some message that you hear through a song you listen to and the Spirit of God says, I am talking to you. I am opening your eyes. I'm touching your heart because I want you to know this is for you. And you say to the Lord, nope. Jonah would say to you, I know what that's like because I did it. I know what it's like for God to come and say, this is what I want you to do. And I look at God to say, nope, I'm going to do it today. And Jonah says, learn about the grace and the mercy of your God. Because the same God who pursued me is pursuing you. You know, some of you, God's been pursuing you for some time. You're not here today by accident. You didn't just show up today. You're here because the Spirit of God orchestrated events that led you to this place so that you would hear these songs, you would listen to these prayers, you would hear these words, and you would hear this message. And it is God saying to you, whatever's going on in your heart, it is God saying to you, will you yield? Will you repent? For some of you, it may be as simple as, God, there's a thing that you and I have been talking about, and it's been going on long enough, and I repent. I need forgiveness, and I need help. For others of you, it may be much bigger. It may be, Lord, I've been living a life that, that is not at all 
a life that belongs to you. I am like that king. I've been sitting on my throne. I've been wearing my own robes. I've made my own righteousness. I'm convinced in my own head that I'm good with God and all of a sudden, everything has just been exploded for me and I don't know where things are right now. All I know is that I'm standing here or sitting here this morning and something is going on in my heart and I have to deal with this sin that I didn't think was a big deal. Now I have to deal with it. And Pastor Sam, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. Well, let me tell you what John would tell you. Humble yourself. Seek God. Repent. And ask God for mercy. He loves to show mercy. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, I I don't know what you're doing in anybody's heart except my own. Lord, when I first started this chapter, you know it was very different in my mind than, than what I've actually come to see, Lord, the incredible way in which you work on so many levels. Lord, we, we are sometimes playing checkers and, and you are setting up a chessboard and you are so wisely moving all the pieces so that more than one thing is happening. And Lord, I have a sense that you're doing that in our lives through this series. Lord, help us to not be like Israel. Help us to not be like Jonah. Help us to be like the Ninevites. Help us to acknowledge our sin. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Help us to repent and mightily beg you for mercy. A mercy that is just because of what your son did for us on the cross. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.